So today in the Reading Corner, I'm delighted to be welcoming both Nick Lake and Emily Gravett. We're going to be talking about their book, Locked Out Lily, uh, which is a very interesting, unique story, I would say. And we're going to be delving deep into its pages. But before we do that, I wanted to invite Nick to read the beginning of the story to us. Okay, so uh, this chapter is called Before the Beginning. In the garden of the house, a mole was talking to a crow. The sun was setting. That was the reason the animals were visible at all. In the daytime, they could not be seen unless they wanted to be. Do you think she'll be here soon? said the mole. The girl? I don't know, said the crow, hopping from one foot to the other. Why should I? I tunnel in darkness, said the mole. You're clever. You saw in the air. I'm clever too, said a mouse. He was leaning against the severed trunk of a tree. No, you're not, said the mole. True, said the mouse, not very sadly. But I'm willing. We'll all have to be willing if the girl is going to win, said the crow. There was a long pause. The house was a looming presence in front of them, its edges becoming less definite as the light faded from the sky. The mole sniffed the air. She smelled something that could not be put into words, a certain slackness in the evening, but a dangerous one. Something laid out as if loose on the framework of the world that might at any moment be pulled taut. Goodness, we're all very serious, aren't we? said the mouse. Shall I sing a song? Only if you want me to eat you, said a snake who had slithered up to join them. Don't think I won't. Fine, said the mouse with a humph. They watched the house. She won't win if she doesn't come, said the mouse eventually. She will come, won't she? She'll come, said the mole. I can smell it. Well, there we have it, said the crow. Mole's nose has spoken. It was my mouth at... Oh, the crow had given Mole a withering glance. Now hush, it said, folding its wings. We don't want them to hear us. The animals fell silent and watched the house. It was empty, but it was quick, in the old sense of the word, quivering with life and it was those old senses the animals cared about most. A shadow moved past a window, though there was no light to explain it. The animals shivered, even the snake, who was cold-blooded, and the mole, who couldn't see. They waited. Mm, do you know, I loved that line um, as soon as I read it, the shadow that moved past the window, and there was no light to explain it. I think there's nothing more terrifying than a shadow that you can't explain. Maybe tell us a bit about the story and then why you started this chapter with these four animal characters. So the story is about a girl called Lily. Um, she is quite ill. We don't precisely know uh, what she's ill with, although there are certain clues. But she's ill in a sort of chronic way. Her mother is heavily pregnant about to have another child which Lily is not at all happy about um, she sort of feels that she's going to be replaced and usurped which I think is a common feeling in children of that sort of age um, she's sent off to stay with her grandmother who lives in the same village um, because the baby is imminent um, but she decides to run away from her grandmother's house and go home and comes to the door puts her key into the lock and the door is opened by 
what looks like her mother, but has sort of coal for eyes, holding a very not human seeming baby, um, who says, who are you? What, what are you doing here? You don't belong here and locks her out. And the rest of the story is sort of, I always say it's like Home Alone turned inside out. It's Lily trying to break into the house mm. with the help of these four talking animals, the mole, the crow, the snake, and the mouse. And your question is interesting because actually for probably five drafts of the book, it opened with Lily with her grandmother picking stuff up from the house in order to go to her grandmother's house, which is what happens after the bit I just read. And it was quite late on. Considering it's a short book, it was an incredibly difficult book to write. There are things in it that are magic, but it had to feel very real at the same time. And to get that balance was unbelievably difficult. So anyway, one of the people who read it said that it felt, because the book has an epilogue, that it needed to be bookended and that it needed a sort of prologue as well as an epilogue. And that was how that chapter with the animals came about. And I think I eventually realised that the book needed to start with those animals, even though she doesn't encounter them until later in the story. The animals are, are, are key and they're real. That's the other thing. At least one of the readers I gave it to wanted to, me to make it more clear that they were allegorical and that they were each, you know, aspects of Lily's personality. And, and I got annoyed and did the exact opposite and have a line later in the book where they say very clearly that they're real and Lily says that they're real. And Yeah. So. Well, of course, they can be both real and allegorical. And they yes. are different from the other animals in the garden because they quite snippily yes. say it's just a fox. Yes. So you know they're yes. more than just a yes. fox. Oh, yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> they're... Um, they're magical and they're real and they're allegorical all at the same time. Yeah. But I didn't, I didn't want them to be one rather than the other. I wanted them yeah. to be both. Yeah. Do you know what I found really interesting as a reader is that the first chapter proper with Lily, if you like, I felt quite agonised by it and I felt quite angry with her parents. I mean, how could you have another baby when you've got a daughter so sick? You know, no wonder she's going to feel like this, I'm thinking in my head. But because I'd had this chapter beforehand with the animals, it somehow softened that feeling and made me feel that I was in a different territory to one that was purely realistic, if you like. So it gave me license to feel that it would still be okay that there was magic involved in this. Yes, and maybe it sets up that it's a quest, that they're meant to have another child and she's meant to come to the garden and they're waiting for her to come mm. because this has all been sort of ordained in some way. You know, mm. it has to happen. It has to happen that the replacements take over the house and mm. that she defeats them. And, and actually there's, I can't remember which of the animals says it, but there's a point in the story where they tell Lily that, that under her house is the source of all magic. So mm. I, I wanted it to sort of, to have those tropes isn't the right word, but I, I wanted that sense of that kind of grand battle between good and evil and, and that actually, while it may seem to be this little domestic setting, what Lily is engaging in is, <coughs> is sort of saving the world and the source mm. of all magic, which is also herself and her soul. So. Yeah. It won't surprise you to know that in the publicity material that was uh, sent with, with it, there was um, a lot of connections made to Coraline. You know, I think that's at the level of, the you know, the other mother and the dark eyes. But as I was reading it, I got all kinds of other resonances from literature. Jim's Lion, Russell Hoban, 
Marianne Dreams by Catherine Storr. Outside over there, Morris Sendak, The Wizard of Oz, where you reference that one very explicitly. (laughs) And in a way, your animal characters are also, uh, amongst being the other things that you've talked about, they are also a little like a scarecrow, a lion and a tin man. Oh gosh, that's very interesting. I hadn't thought of that at all, but that uh, you're probably absolutely right. The Coraline thing I'm I'm sort of acutely conscious of, and I think that's, um, you know, I love Coraline, and it's one of the reasons I became a children's book editor, because it expanded my sense of what children's books could do. I th- but I think in a sense, it's also just a coincidence, which is that really what what inspired this book most of all, apart from Home Alone, which I'm also obsessed with because I think it's an extraordinary story, is um, particularly Alan Garner's retelling of a folktale called The Pear Drum, which is about these two girls who behave increasingly badly and, and as a result they're, they're punished by their mother turning into this other mother with glass eyes and a tail and they can only look in through the window at her and, and um, are too scared to go in. So I think Coraline and this book come from the same roots, but yeah, there's there's it's relatively consciously, I suppose, a love letter to children's literature in general. Mm. So there's definitely Morris Sendak in there. You know, there's Secret Garden in there. There's Alan Garner. Mm. There's um, David Almond. You know, Skellig, I think, is one of those perfect books. Susan Cooper. You know, but also things like Tom's Midnight Garden and Wind in the Willows. That was what I was conscious of. I wanted the mm. animals to be quite Wind in the Willowsy. Yeah. I want to bring Emily in in a moment, but I just want to ask one more thing. You you talked about gardens, but there's also this thing about houses. And this house is protected by what I think are called apotropaic markings, (laughs) the daisy wheel kind of thing. And there's a lot of the old, the myth uh, in there, you know, the the may tree that's planted, the magpie's wing that she keeps um, with her the Iron Horseshoe, and I like the juxtaposition. I felt there was a bit of a commentary maybe going on between this kind of renovation of the house, you know, how we try to reconstruct the past (laughs) and, you know, the new things, and yet that what's genuinely old can just get forgotten. Yes, I think there's probably even some contradiction in there because I'm fascinated by old things and... The apotropaic symbols, actually, I have one on my house. That's where that came from. So that we have a, a 1490 arched doorway at the back of our house, which has the wheel, you know, the, the demon trap wheel carved into it. But I think at the same time, we, we, we spent a good year of our lives whacking a glass and cladding extension on the back of our old house. And so I myself have sort of mixed feelings about it. So equally, the story, in one sense, you can say, well, they put this extension on the back of the house and it covers up the the well, which is the source of magic, and that allows the replacements to come in. And so they've taken away the house's protection by building this extension. But also, I suppose the story is saying, because I think it's probably not too much of a spoiler to say this, that new things are not bad and replacing things is not bad, or rather you're not being replaced (laughs) by a new thing coming Mm -hmm. in. Because, of course, Lily, in the end realizes she loves this little mm. sister she goes to the hospital that's part of the story and there's a moment where she's she's locked in a sort of magical room in the hospital and she can only get out by holding her baby sister mm. and realizing that her baby sister is only adding to her not taking anything away 
So listening to what Nick was talking about there, both real and not real, the magic and the everyday, Mm. is that something that you responded to or were there other things that you picked out? It was fundamentally the sort of the magic because I find that thing fascinating and I can never articulate why I find it fascinating. And I like the fact that it wasn't very obvious and it didn't really hit you over the head and it still managed to be have a sort of leg in reality as well, which I liked. And the animals as well. So did you sit down to think about how you wanted to create these illustrations? Because they're, they're very different to your picture book work. Just take me through some of the, the, the thought processes when you had the manuscript and how you wanted to respond to it. My main response was I wanted to try and keep Lily out of it as much as possible, really. Yeah. I didn't want to see them because I always keep sort of falling into a trap with older fiction where you just end up illustrating what's on the page and just depicting these people in different positions. And you think every child doesn't need that because if they're truly into the story, they don't need pulling out to be reminded what that person looks like. I don't think. Whereas Mm -hmm. if you're seeing the animals up close, you are you Lily? Are you whose viewpoint are you seeing it from? It's more interesting, I think. So I tried to keep them out of it as much as I could until it had a little bit of a sort of flip at the end. I think when things started to be resolved, I felt that that's the point when you could maybe see a bit more of them, but still not really their faces. What you've brought in is kind of darkness and atmosphere. Mm. And I love those kind of those black spreads where you just, Mm. you can just see mole or you can just see, you can just see mouse sort of being swept by the broom and, and it, it kind of, um, it enhances rather than saying this is a scene that is happening that you can read for yourself anyway. It's, it's really very beautiful. difficult in this age of group of fiction to illustrate like that, I think. And I, I'm not I'm not natural because it's not what I do. I do picture books. So I it, you know, I would leave the words out and just put the scene in. <laughs> I can't really come to you. I mean, your writing's too good. I can't really come to you go like, just cut that out. I could just do that as a drawing. But your sort of your camera goes everywhere, which is nice. You know, you go into Lily's veins and sometimes you're sort of looking down on things and you're not just moving around the scene, you're sort of moving in and out of the characters. And that's that's amazing. I wanted to pick out some specific illustrations. One was the first time that you see Lily. You actually see a back view of her. With the house above. Yeah. Yeah. And and most of it's in darkness and it's just a slight three-quarter profile. We don't really see her except we get a sense of her from behind and we definitely don't see her expression. There are quite a lot of uh, pictures in here that are what you might call non-narrative. So I'm looking here at a page where moss is falling off the roof and there are other pages that are tree branches And it seems to me, I was talking to Pam Smy about this the other day, that sometimes people talk about that as decorative. And that to me seems sort of dismissive of something that is so much more than decorating the page. So I'd really like to know what your thoughts are um, on that. I mean, all of those things are are just there to add to the atmosphere, really. You don't want you don't want to be left in great swathes of blankness and, and you want something that's going to keep that kind of mood going. 
I mean, that that that's the kind of example, the kind of like shadows and things like that, I think. What is interesting, <laughs> you've got, so just for people who are listening in and can't see what we're looking at oh, here, sorry, yeah, you've just shown us a sort of um, almost like a shadow of bars banisters. across yeah, the page. Really, I think they are. Well, in my head, they were, they were banisters. It's also interesting that what I thought were repeating patterns through the book as well. So we've got here... In front of me, I'm looking at a narr- what I think of as a, a sort of narrative spread in as much as you've got the windows of the house looking from the inside out. And we've got the mouse um, on the picture that's, here. That's a, that's a pet carrier. That yeah. them locked inside. Of well, a of course pet it carrier. is. <laughs> but <laughs> or her locked in. <laughs> it's her locked them in. Try, and them trying, trying to get, get her, her out of the pet yeah. carrier. So you're, it's really you are interesting her, because... at this point, you are in the pet carrier and yeah. they are out. Nick, what were you so going to say? It's interesting you say at this point you are in the pet carrier because what I was going to say is what I love about the textures of the sort of the wood and the, the smoke and the shadow is that it's putting you in the story. It's like a film, but better than a film because half of it you're making in your own head and half of it Emily's putting you into the scene and you're surrounded by the textures that Lily's surrounded by but actually and maybe this is partly why you resisted showing her Emily a lot of the time we're seeing what she's seeing aren't we and that echoes how I write because I have no idea what Lily looks like because I'm just in her head looking out and so there's, there's something really powerful about the way the images kind of push that even further and what you're often seeing there's another image of the only image maybe of the other mother holding the the fake baby and and you're looking up as if you're lily at her and you don't Um, really even see her particularly do you because she's too scary to look at in the eyes i felt that actually that that would be either i wouldn't draw it scary enough or it would cheapen it somehow to actually Mm. be able to see her properly Mm. And the same with the dad with the broom. He's in there, but he's so far into yeah. the shadow that you you never really... Cause in the same way that actually, if something's terrifying, you don't really want to look at it, do you? Mm. You just put your head under the duvet. Yes. Mm. So it's almost like both of us had the same instinct to be in her head and see the things she's seeing. Yeah. Interesting, because just picking up on, on that pattern uh, again, which I felt came in in the hospital, like bars and windows where she's sitting on the side of the bed the whole thing is lightened quite dramatically there Mm. so I mean that's when that's when you do start to feel that you're you're not really uh, no longer locked in and and actually things have resolved so you can feel a bit more disconnected from it which moves even more dramatically the further we go into the story and uh, trying to say this without uh, giving up too much away but I think the end scene really looks quite different here with its It's lightness light light, yeah so uh, it's really sort of the reverse of everything mainly throughout the whole book really is is quite in the shadows everything's done at night everything is is quite sort of you you don't really see it clearly it's dark shadowy you've seen things from her perspective but the the final spread is more you know we're it's daytime we've come into the light things are not scary I was very fascinated as well by the um Nick I don't know what you thought about the image where she's hugging the parents and you've got sort of all these synapses and oh, the I felt like parents. I was in the galaxy 
Yeah. Well, that was sort of, again, it's one of these odd things that Emily sort of intuited that I never said explicitly, but I think a big, big, big part of my kind of inspiration for this book and what I wanted to do with this book is that I've had a lifelong fascination with that sort of alchemical concept of as above, so below, and that notion that, you know, the orbit of the electron around the nucleus echoes the orbit of the planets and that whole notion of the sort of the inside and the outside and the power of iron this is a, a kind of a spoiler but um because of lily's illness she gets injected with massive injections of iron to sort of to replace her body's natural stores and comes to realize that this could help her against the replacement parents because she herself is a weapon she's got the iron inside her and, and you know i was visualizing the little particles of iron racing through her bloodstream and so the notion of big things within small things which i mm -hmm. think is sort of central probably to folktale and storytelling anyway was really important and i never said any of that and then and emily's kind of done a very similar thing because you're looking simultaneously at the branching of her veins within her body in a sort of x-ray image and yes at the same time she's surrounded by all the the sparkles of the the parents disappearing into dust but it looks like mm. a galaxy Emily, I'd love to know how you made these uh, dark pictures. Uh, did, were you using printing here? Because I think of you as somebody who draws and paints. No, I was. I, no, I don't have the facilities really to print. So most of it is drawn. Some of it's um, ink and sort of like ink washes, really. With um, I use Chinese brushes a lot now. Um, mm. So for the wings and all of those kind of things, and in fact the. The, the veining, which I felt like she was like a tree with all the little branches yeah. inside of her. I mean, my original, my original end papers, which weren't weren't the end papers you see, were actually just the May tree, the mm. uh, May tree branched out for me the side of the spine to look like my favourite way as well. Then, <laughs> so that they were, I mean, they were iron coloured. That's how I saw it. So yeah, I was doing that, and then I was I was using bits of old um, texture, um, printed texture from years ago like etchings that I did I felt like some of it looked like potato potato print <laughs> or, or sponges <laughs> particularly <laughs> this kind of thing yeah think, you know what that is that's wax crayon I have these square uh... wax crayons that they come in blocks but they on watercolor paper they have I tried all sorts of I was trying rollers and things to get that kind of rough texture none of it worked but these wax crayons were were just the, the business really <laughs> What were you most pleased with, Emily? I think probably this, this, some of the sort of simpler like images of just the animals together. I think that's what, what got me sort of interested in doing it in the first place. And then some of the stuff that's in very deep shadow. I, I, I was really pleased with the dad broom mouse. There's a dad broom mouse image in there, which I was, I was really pleased with. It just felt like it captured it, what was happening mm. well, I think. Yeah. So, Nick just one final question really and that is you know we know you as a writer for young adults I think this could equally be read by young adults but in terms of its marketing it's been called middle grade what did you perhaps discover in writing something that was quite different like this if I discovered anything it's something I already knew which is that writing something relatively short in word length for me at least I, f I find incredibly difficult as well as the difficulty of balancing the realism and the magic just 
I'd always wanted to do something really tight and short and economical mm. and I admire so many books like that and so <laughs> if I discovered anything it's that this is just as hard to do that as I had always thought it was because I didn't want to be writing these like 100,000 word long YA novels I always wanted them to come in you know 60 70,000 words and I just couldn't do it yeah I really like that as a message um, and I'm sure it's one that Emily appreciates as well being a not only a, an illustrator but a writer of picture books where everything has to count if you're going to create a great picture book and it's not necessarily easier to have less Um, so I love that message I think maybe we all have we all have lengths that are more natural to us don't we I know that nothing nothing gets longer than a picture book for me Thank you so much for joining me in the reading corner today, Nick and Emily. I wish you all the best with Locked Out Lily. Books are never classics when they're first written. How can they be? But it has the feeling of something that can prevail and be long lasting. And also one that you can read more than once. And I'm definitely going to be delving back in and rereading. And also with a different way of looking, having spoken to both of you today. So thank you so much. In the Reading Corner is presented by Nikki Gamble and produced by Alison Hughes. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please do leave a review for us. To find out about other projects, including an audience with events and the Exploring Children's Literature Summer School, visit www.exploringchildrensliterature.uk. Join us again soon in the Reading Corner on your favourite podcast platform.